Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which we work hard to keep friendly and inclusive. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hi, friends. Today, I'm talking to two breeders who have joined forces to set up a new cooperative and registry for breeders as part of the FDC, with a focus on breeding for health and specific companion temperament goals, regardless of breed mix. Laura Sharkey is the owner and training director at Wolf's Dog Training Center in Arlington, Virginia. Laura holds a PhD in microbiology and immunology and has over 20 years of experience in training dogs, fostering and raising litters. Her personal breeding program is the Boson Dog Project. Carolyn Kelly is a registered nurse with over 30 years of experience in human health, including in labor and delivery, and in mental health, where she witnessed the power that animal-assisted interventions can play in the healing process. She holds a master's degree in nursing leadership and runs a small mixed-breed companion dog program, Old Mission Retrievers. Together, they have founded the Co-Pilot Breeding Cooperative and have some really exciting ideas about the future of dog breeding. I'm looking forward to helping them share their plans here. Hello, Laura and Carolyn. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Um, Normally, I start out by asking people to tell us about their dogs, but you guys both have quite a few of those. So why don't we start out with, uh, let's start with Carolyn. Can you tell us about your breeding program? Sure, I would love to. So I have uh, a small breeding program. uh, I have five dogs currently, five uh, so not not a kennel or um, hundreds of dogs or anything like that, but I have five dogs currently that I live with in various stages of growing up, um, only one of whom at the moment is a current breeding dog. They're all in different stages of that process, um, being evaluated or I have one retired and that sort of thing. Um, I <clears throat> started breeding because I... You know, it's sort of the, I don't know, it gets mixed reviews as a motivation for breeding. Different uh, audience members may have different opinions about it, but I've had lots of dogs over my life, raised many dogs for my own pets, and um, I'm a nurse by trade. That's my day job. And I was a labor and delivery nurse for a long time and kind of loved that process and certainly one of my passions. Anyway, I have came across a dog later in here in midlife who is just, um, I know this is, you know, like I said, different, different opinions on this motivation, but gosh, is she just the best dog. (laughs) And, uh, and she really is. She's, she's, um, she was an easy puppy. She loves, she's extremely social. She's very easy. You can, you can take her anywhere. She loves the car. She will go to the beach. She will go camping with you. She can go to the park. She's pretty neutral to other dogs, quite neutral. If she's not thrilled with them, she just ignores them. That's fine with her. If they want to act a fool, she doesn't mind. Um, And she's a beautiful dog. I always got lots of compliments on her. She's a purebred lab. Um, She came from a breeder who didn't mind if I bred her. And um, finally, when she was four and a half years old, I thought, hey, let's, let's, let's breed this dog. And from there, I just, it became um, an obsession. I've been learning now for about over three years, um, everything I can possibly consume about dog breeding and genetics and um, dog behavior and how to be a good dog breeder. And my program kind of reflects my evolution with that. I have um, do mixed breedings, um, partly because I really believe strongly that you know low coefficient of inbreeding and diversity is important, and partly because <clears throat> that's um, just the type of dogs and the folks that I'm in community with. Um, that's that's where we 
kind of live. So I have I have two two lines right now, kind of two directions I'm going. One is the um, is a uh, non-shedding retriever standard size. I'm going for easy easier to maintain low shedding coats that don't have any curl. So they don't do a lot of the matting and things that well they they can, but it's it's an easier to maintain coat than some of the other um, non-shedding mixes. Um, and my goal with that line is a, a service dog type temperament, a confident, um, highly social, um, all around family dog. And then <clears throat> the second direction I'm going is a smaller line. There's a lot of folks who really older people, uh, people, physically limited folks, people with uh, limited space who really look for, are looking for a smaller dog. And, um, so I'm looking at some different kinds of um, mixes that will help bring down the size. So yeah, my, my program is about making great pets for people and, and using evidence-based uh, breeding practices and um, doing all the things I know how to do to, to make healthy, solid dogs, whatever that means, regardless of breed. Awesome. And I, I think we'll probably be talking a fair amount more during this episode about exactly what that yeah, means. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, a lot of yeah. detail there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So, Laura. Hey. Um, I started breeding. Well, I've had this idea for a breeding project for probably over 10 years. And my day job is I have been a dog trainer for the past 20 something years. And over that time, I've seen a dramatic shift in um, the dogs that people have. And as a small business owner and dog training center, we've seen more and more people adopting uh, behaviorally challenging dogs in the last uh, five to 10 years, I would say. And my uh, path to breeding was... I wanted to be able to send clients who were looking for a great pet dog um, that did not come with a bunch of behavioral or health issues. And so I thought, well, what if somebody was breeding for health and temperament only, meaning without regard to color without regard to, you know, the stop of their nose has, you know, the stop of their head has to be a certain amount and the distance between their eyes has to be this and they can't have this color or their legs are too long or their legs are too short or their shoulders are too high. Anyway, the, the point being like, forget about all that. Take away the, the genetic pressure that comes with needing to breed a certain size and look and breed solely for health and temperament. And so that's how I came around to it. And so I, I started looking for dogs to do this with, and um, that turned out to be really challenging because it was, it was just hard to acquire a dog that I could breed. And I started on my way and I've been breeding for, let's see, my first litter is now two and a half years old. So I guess I've been on a similar trajectory time-wise um, as Carolyn. I think my idea started, like I said, 10 years ago at least to start doing this and I'm, I'm finally doing it. And my, my breeding program is called the Boson Dog Project because I consider it a project. We don't know how to breed for health and temperament only. <laughs> you know, we don't know how to match dogs up and, and get really nice dogs. So I, I do consider it an experiment or a project. Um, and a lot of what I want to do is collect data about um, how this goes along. Yeah, you're both very science-minded. So Carolyn mentioned that she's a registered nurse and um, Laura has a PhD. So both of you have some 
Yes, I was a scientist in my previous background. life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So both of you have a background in sort of thinking yeah. through how how things work. Yes, and like that. Yeah, exactly. And like like Laura, I one of the things that's amazed me on my my journey of learning about the dog breeding world is is how much information there isn't or real data. Um, I mean, there's a don't don't get me wrong. A, a huge amount of knowledge and work has been done in dog breeding. It's obviously an old um, art form, but um, in in the mixed breed world, f- for one thing, a lot a lot of the the science has been focused around breed, and within breeds, what what works and what data do we have about this breed or that breed or how to um, optimize health within a closed gene pool. Um, so that's it's really different when you um, get outside of that. But then also they're just, it's like everything. The more you start to learn, the more you realize isn't known, particularly about temperament and how to really um, breed for that as a priority um, and make sure that you do a good job with it. And and Laura and I share that desire to um, really find a way to quantify what we're doing and collect data about it so that we can help um, learn for us and for others what's the best way to do that. Yeah, and yeah. make informed decisions going forward. Yeah, I love that you two both recognize that the map isn't there yet, but you're going to try to do it because if no one tries to do it, there never will be a map. I was really surprised about that. I was surprised yeah. that there wasn't a map. Yeah, I you think know? a lot of people are. I, I get just... that question a lot. How do I do this? <laughs> How do I, I do like, this? I don't, no one knows. <laughs> Nobody knows, which that just that just blows my mind. You know, like, I mean, of all the years, like Carolyn said, you know, we've been breeding dogs for, you know, breed dogs over 100 years and obviously thousands of years before that. Um, but there is no map to how to breed a dog for health and temperament, right? A mid-size, easy-to-live-with companion pet. And uh, I, I think, you know, going back to dog breeds, their origins had had very specific purposes. And I think today, we've, we've the dog is a different place in our world, so certainly in North America. And I, I think you know, if you're talking about, well, a border collie can herd and a, and a hound can hunt and a terrier can, you know, critter. I think in, in today's world, there's, there's no higher goal than being a, a fantastic companion, you know? And so when people say, well, you know, you don't have a purpose. I mean, yes, companion dogs. That is the main purpose of dogs now. You know, like I said, at least in North America and most a lot of, part of parts of the world. Let's say know. the most common purpose. Yeah, the most common purpose. Yeah. You know, um, is is a companion and a great companion is, you know, worth its weight in gold. So, right. It is it is a job unto itself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. To be a good companion. And there are there are companion breeds, which, you know, that certainly there are some of the toy breeds are specifically um, bred for companionship. And they probably do, in many cases, serve that purpose well. One of the things that Laura and I are really focused on doing differently is is losing that um, priority for the aesthetic. So, um, you know, needing to breed a Cavalier King Charles or or whatever wonderful small toy companion breed to a breed standard based on appearance really limits um, what you can do as far as um, outcrossing for health and it limits what you can do um, as far as temperament as well so and you can see that with some of the breeds that are struggling with some health problems so there are dogs certainly there are purebred dogs out there who have great pet temperaments um, but in many cases they're not in a sustainable um, breed situation yeah, yeah. I think I'm sorry. That's. I think it's a. It's a good point to point out that neither one of us are anti-purebred, right? I personally live with two purebred dogs. I've had purebred dogs. I've had mixed-breed dogs. This isn't about saying, you know, one is better than the other. It's just about doing something a little bit different. Yeah, that's a very. That's a very valuable point to make. 
Um, but one of the differences is that with purebred dogs, there are structures set up to help people find each other and to help people recognize if I'm going to breed my dog, um, here are ways of identifying someone who's produced another dog that would be a good match for my dog. Um, and that can be harder for someone who's sort of setting off to do something really new, which brings us to this idea of a breeding cooperative. So I was hoping, Carolyn, that you could tell us a bit about sort of the concept of a breeding cooperative, because I imagine a lot of people listening to this might not have heard that phrase before. Right. Well, I learned a lot about breeding cooperatives from the Functional Dog Collaborative and some of your previous um, podcast episodes, um, particularly with uh, service dog groups, um, have some pretty incredible work they have done um, with breeding cooperatives and with uh, having a population of dogs um, probably uh, who come from more than one breeding program in in most cases who then um, uh, share data and best practices and find ways to um, improve the whole population of dogs and and that is where our uh, inspiration for our breeding cooperative which is focused on breeding pet dogs regardless of breed we really want to mirror some of that advantage that you can get from not just each program functioning in isolated independence struggling to find good dogs you know good breeding candidates and and do health testing and make decisions about pairings but to um, join forces with other folks who have similar goals and um, work on not only you know sharing stock potentially but collecting data on the temperament and health of our dogs our health testing results and then um, over time by studying the puppies and seeing what we get find ways to really do the very best job we can and and i think um, that's essentially what uh, a breeding cooperative is a group of breeders cooperating <laughs> yeah yeah and it's so also also, you know, it, it creates a community, right? A community of people who are interested in the same things we're doing. And um, like Carolyn said, we can breed, we can share stock, but we can also share like, I bred this dog to this dog and this is what I got and I wasn't expecting that. And, you know, it, um, you know, as much as it, it helps us collect data, it also, uh, we can support each other because um, breeding is hard. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to it's always hard to balance um all the things that you're trying to do even even when you're trying to make it easier by saying I'm going to take some of the aesthetics out and have fewer things to balance. There's still a lot to balance. And um and there aren't rules out there like there's I mean rules, but there's sort of societally accepted um perceptions of of how you do purebred breeding responsibly, and it's harder to know how we do mixed breeding responsibly. So I know that was something that was really important to you two in putting together the cooperative was to try to have some guidelines for how people who were part of the cooperative would breed. And I know you struggled with that a lot. So I was hoping you two could tell me, I mean, all about it, both maybe start with sort of how, how you went about putting that those guidelines together. Right. Well, it it started as okay, we're we're going to have a cooperative and we want to define ourselves for what, you know, how is it that we breed dogs? Similar to how maybe a breed club defines what they do. I mean, they set a breed standard and say we breed dogs with this um, genetic background who are this size and this shape and this to this breed standard and that that has a lot of value cuz it gets everybody pulling in a direction and that's where a lot of purebred breeders kind of find their true north you know this is how I breed and this is why I breed responsibly because I breed to a breed standard and so when we were thinking about how would that be different when we're breeding regardless of breed we're breeding a, a type of you know a to a to a to a goal temperament um, to a healthy goal but not based on an aesthetic standard what would be the priorities and so we wrote some guidelines about um, what we think defines responsible breeding. And 
a big chunk of it is uh, a kind of animal husbandry. You know, um, a big part of what I think is the number one thing that's important about a breeder is how their adult dogs are being treated, whether their dogs live in uh, and I know, and again, I'm not against pure breeding. I'm also not against kennels. I, I know personally of, of some kennel programs that do a good job, you know, and I think that's that there can definitely be a role for that. And that doesn't mean if you're in a kennel that you're mistreating your dogs, but, and and we don't define that a hundred percent, but um, that your dogs have vet care, that they have uh, enriching lives, that they have all the things that they need to be happy, healthy individuals, as well as breeding dogs, was is a big part of the guidelines. So we had um, a lot of input from um, different other breeders and um, leadership of the FDC and thoughts about how you would really define that and tried our best to put that together. And then we also, one thing that's really different about our guideline than any um, any other program that I know of is that we define that the we have to have a genetic coefficient of inbreeding for any planned puppies of 10% or less, which is somewhat of an arbitrary cutoff, and you certainly can have healthy dogs with a higher COI, but since we are, uh, this is a project, um, and we want to collect data and see uh, really what the difference is when you're when you're mixing dogs and whether how that impacts what kind of health testing you need to do. We're defining that as a part of our co-op is that we breed dogs with a low coefficient of inbreeding. And, and then we have some health testing guidelines which are flexible because we're dealing with many different breeds and dogs of many different backgrounds, but health testing is an important part of breeding and that's understood. So I remember that as you were, you were trying to figure out uh, guidelines for hip testing and you were trying to think of a, a cutoff and, you know, just, or, or goal numbers. Mm -hmm. And I remember there was, you sort of were thinking you probably are going to go with pen hip and, you know, maybe have some alternate guidelines for OFA, but um, there's a lot of research out there suggesting that pen hip is, is more predictive. Um, and so we were, at, you were at least focusing on pen hip without completely discarding OFA, but I'm just going to talk, we'll just talk about pen hip for now. And um, so those, for those who don't know, um, pen hip has numbers uh, basically between zero and one. Um, you wouldn't ever go as high as one. Hopefully I don't think the dog would be able to walk. No, no. Um, but, um, but they're going to be sort of between 0 0.2, 0 0.6 and lower are tighter hips and higher are looser hips. And so generally we think that lower is better. And so there's just a lot of struggling with, you know, well, this test is not highly, highly predictive. It's, it's, it's fairly predictive, but there's nothing that's completely predictive for, um, for testing hips and predicting whether the dog is going to actually have pain later on and, right. and or gait problems. And so like, where do we draw the line and are we going to be losing potentially good dogs? Yeah. Um, and so maybe could you guys talk a little bit about that struggle and how you how you resolved it? Because I remember it yeah. was, that was a tough one. This was this was a really big kind of can of worms. And I, I think um, Carolyn and I both learned a lot. And what was really, really valuable is we got a lot of feedback from, a, a, you know, a group of other breeders who are doing similar outcross projects that we are. Because, you know, the, the pen hip index, you know, from their own data, they say anything, you know, 0.3 and under has uh, basically a almost 0% chance of having any hip dysplasia. And so, you know, originally we were thinking, oh, well, all right, so that, that should be our goal. But we heard from a lot, a lot of people who were saying, you know, look, in and my dog has a, you know, 0.5 distraction index and the dog's fine. And she's, you know, nine and a half years old. She's never had hip dysplasia. She has no gait problem. She has no obvious pain. There's no lameness. Um, and, you know, that sent us down this, this tunnel of, um, okay, so what does testing mean and and how do we 
mesh that with what we're actually seeing in the dog. And, you know, and with anything, just because a test says you carry a certain trait doesn't mean that that trait is being expressed or that you have the problem that the test says you might have. Uh, so we ended up changing in response to the feedback we got. We ended up changing our guidelines to say, uh, to basically say, you know, do the test and use we'll the take information. the information yeah. and use the information, right? Take, do the test, use the information to make wise breeding choices. So say you have a perfectly fantastic temperamented dog with a distraction index of 0.6, but it's the best dog ever. And she's already six or seven years old, or, you know, maybe a little bit younger. Um, and you're going to breed her. Well, we're not going to say don't breed that dog because it has a 0.6 distraction index. What we're going to say is, well, maybe you should make sure to breed it to something, to a to a to another dog who has a lower distraction index. Right. And also that we're going to try to collect some data and the puppies and see what we're getting. And I think this, you know, like Laura said, it opens up a can of worms. And that's one of the things that's been the most eye-opening for me in learning about dog breeding and overall is that the how there are a lot of great tools with health testing um there's a lot available but there's a lot more that isn't testable i mean a lot more and the heritability of hip dysplasia is very complicated and the the breeding co-ops the the seeing eye groups have i mean they're a great example of what you really have to do in order to use hip dysplasia testing to improve hip scores. I mean, you really have to have data on almost all the puppies you produce over multiple generations. And then you have to use an algorithm, which, you know, estimated breeding values to predict which dogs are the best ones to breed. And if you're breeding in isolation and you're looking at the phenotype of a dog's hips, it's good information to have, but you really don't have everything you need to know if you're going to reduce hip dysplasia and when you're crossbreeding to be honest we don't really know what the risk of hip dysplasia is in these dogs anyway <laughs> so yeah, we're, we we're no, not no data right we're not breeding bernie's mountain dogs or german shepherds where we know that hip dysplasia is a big risk and you know we really need to have a target we don't really um people have not been collecting data I mean, certainly there's information out there about the health of mixed breed dogs. And overall, we know that they tend to do somewhat better, but they certainly can have problems. You know, they can have hip dysplasia. They can have cancer. How do we know how to prevent that? Um, there's just a lot we don't know. And, and, and yeah. I think that's one of the gaps that maybe, you know, if we think big, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe we can collect data. One of the things about the co-op and... Um, we're going to have a registry. Uh, it's called the Companion Dog Registry. And one of the things that Carolyn and I want to do is not only collect the data of, you know, the sire and dam, but collect longitudinal data on all of the puppies, not just the puppies that maybe are going to go on to be breeding adults in, in a certain program, but all of the puppies, because that's the only way to, to really look at the whole picture. You can't just look at the few dogs that are picked out for potential breeding prospects in the future. We have to look at every single puppy. And that's a huge project. And that's, but that's what we want to do, right? We want to create a large database. Let's, let's start collecting the data now. Right. That's what we're working on. And we have, we have, while we're talking about it, we do have, I mean, we have a structure set up in a database and we have uh, um, a plan. Uh, we are at the point now of being ready to register adult dogs and a lot of what the um, guidelines are um, is how, what, what is required to bring an adult dog in to the registry. So um, we set very specific temperament standards and health standards for dogs who uh, might be potential breeding dogs for the, the companion dog registry to be registered in the database. And so um, since we're starting from, from, from now, um, we can register adult dogs 18 months and older who meet those requirements. And that's, it's uh, part of our, our guidelines. 
So maybe you could explain a little bit about how the, the registry works. So someone can come in. So who can register dogs? Do they have to be part of the co-op? How do they register the dog? And then what does that mean when the dog is registered in terms of um, like if it's bred to another registered dog? Like how does how does the registry work? Right. So I think let's let's talk a little bit about the co-op. I'd just like to back up a minute about the co-op. There's two kinds of members in our co-op, right? Say you're a person who likes the idea of outcrossing or breeding mixed breed dogs for health and temperament. Anybody who agrees to the standards and guidelines and wants to just sort of follow along and maybe has breeding goals in the future or maybe doesn't, they can join as general members. Um, and we're, you know, the more the merrier in terms of, you know, information and, and, and sharing of, of data, as well as just creating community. But then people who are actually breeding dogs can join and start registering dogs and start registering litters. So as long as the dog pass, you know, meets the standards and guidelines and your program meets the standards and guidelines, you can start registering a dog. Once we have registered dogs, if a registered, can we say bitch? <laughs> a registered female is bred to a registered... We're not on Facebook, you can <laughs> okay, say bitch. bitch. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like I'm so gun-shy now. Um, so a registered bitch being bred to a registered dog can have a registered litter. And the goal would be to provide resources and support for keeping uh, track of data on all those dogs, on all of those puppies. Right. I lost where I was going with this. I think, so you're talking about, um, so someone can register a dog, someone else can register a bitch, and then all the puppies are in the registry as well. Only? Yes. So, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, that's okay. So there's a, we do have an application for registering an adult dog and it, it, it goes through, um, um, the requirements and you have to submit health testing. Each dog is considered individually. So it's a, it's an individual decision and we're not aiming to be, um, you know, uh, negative about dogs that we look for. If there are health testing things that, you know, someone has a great dog that they think is a good candidate and they'd like to register, but they don't have all the health testing. Our goal is to support people in finding ways to do that um, and, and working with them to see how we can get the dog registered. And then um, dogs who are born to two registered dogs are considered companion dog registered puppies. So it's similar to um, like the AKC or any other registry, the both, both parents need to be registered in order to produce registered puppies. All right. So we've talked about how you have some rules to make sure that dogs, the initial dogs, we could even call them founder dogs. The initial dogs who are coming into the registry are healthy. Um, and that then the puppies are sort of automatically part of the registry, but I think we all know that just because you have two healthy parents doesn't necessarily mean that the puppies are all going to be great breeding prospects. So how are you guys making sure or, or, or trying to provide guidelines and guidance going forward to make sure that the members of the co-op are continuing to have um, to make good progress on moving dogs in the direction of producing healthy and temperamentally sound pets? I think there's a couple of things we're doing. Um, you know, the litter of two registered dogs is going to be registered, but that's not the end of it. One of the things we have hopes for is um, supporting breeders who have had litters in getting all those dogs tested. It is very expensive. It is very time consuming to have a litter of nine puppies, you know, pen hipped and embarked and stuff like that. So one of the goals of the co-op is to provide both financial and got financial support and guidance on what to do, how to, you know, get the litter tested, how to um, look at the results of that particular pairing. Absolutely. 
yeah, and I think that's I think that's a really great goal because that's where we're going to get the data from. Yeah, I think it. So so taking a moment to talk about why it's important maybe to test all of the puppies. So so hip testing. So maybe you have say you have six puppies and one of them clearly is a bit a bit more shy, and so you're thinking this dog is not going to be a good breeding candidate for sure. Um, would you still encourage someone to test that puppy's hips as it became an adult? Absolutely. And can you tell us why? Because we want to know. Say you have a, a, a female who has a distraction index of 0.6 and a male with a distraction index of 0.4. We want to know what are the distraction indexes of all of those puppies, right? Does it, I mean, does 0.6 plus 0.4 equal 0.5. We don't know, you know, so we need to know what. Well, we do know, we do know that applying selection pressure over time, breeding the lower hips will give us better hips. But exactly, Laura, I mean, we, because we're breeding outside of a, a closed gene pool, we, we don't know exactly what the, I mean, nobody knows exactly what the result will be until you have, several generations of data and um, if you don't have all the data points of what you produced it's just less complete information for actually learning what you're getting and what you need to do in order to make it better. And I'd like to say that we want the the behavioral and temperament data as well. It's not just the, the physical health data. We want to know, you know, how these puppies go on and, you know, in their roles as companion dogs in life, how successful are they? You know, what challenge they come up. And this is, you know, this comes, this brings us back around to the, the predictability, right? One of the great things about purebred dogs is because of a closed gene pool, you have much greater predictability of not only what the dog is going to look like, how big the dog is going to be, whether it sheds or it doesn't shed. You also have some level of temperament predictability. I would say that that's probably not nearly as, as um, solid as we'd like to think. So, you know, that's one of the things that we want to look at. What is going to be predictive when breeding mixed breed dogs? Right. And part of what we have accepted, you know, um, in in our program and with our philosophy is that we won't have, in many areas, it's it will be more difficult without line breeding and without fixing traits as much as you can um, with higher COIs. It will be more difficult to have um, as much predictability. And and part of what I one of my big you know, passions since I started learning and, and since I've become a, a dog breeder is that I'd really like to see us think about normalizing um, range, a healthy, healthy range of temperaments and appearance within the litter. I'm not talking about severe aggression being acceptable. I'm not talking about dogs with really unlivable or unstable temperaments being okay, but uh, obviously, we want to eliminate those things, but breeding for a, a healthy range of individuals um, within a program is my goal. And I, I, I we understand that predictability is going to be um, not as not as likely uh, to be extremely predictable as we as you could be in a purebred program. Am I explaining that? Yeah, that I think sense? I think also though I think also that we believe strongly that there will be enough predictability. Right. In, That's what I mean. In, there's going to be enough predictability in, in temperament for these right. dogs to be extraordinarily successful as pet dogs, right. as well as potentially being significantly healthier due to not having a closed stud book. Right. And when I say predictability within a range, that's what I mean. I mean, a range of successful pet temperaments. We may have some that are, you know, there may be within a litter, a more shy dog and a bolder dog. There may be a dog that's, um, you know, more cuddly and less cuddly, but within a range of successful pets that are resilient, can handle the environments that a pet dog 
needs to handle and fit in well with the most um, pet situations. That is the number one goal. Yeah, I keep wanting to jump in and say things, but you guys are saying basically what I would say. Um, so I think that's well, that's great that's if you lovely. want to back yeah. us up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's lovely. So I think what I would reiterate there is that um, well, there was this. There's this paper about dog breeds, I guess, that came out in Science a couple of months ago. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. um, (laughs) That suggested that predictability within entire breeds is probably not what what we think it might be in terms of behavior. And, you know, a lot of people came back and said, but, you know, are those dogs well bred? And my answer was, no, these were, these were all dogs. And so you can have more predictability within lines, um, which... It, to some extent is what you're saying that you're going to provide selection pressure to yeah to go for a certain kind of of personality but the other thing is that i think what that paper should help us to recognize is that there is going to be a range within litters and within within well controlled lines even um that it's and i think we know this right that when you have a litter of puppies on the ground they're not all behavioral clones and it's not like somebody's going to be able to come and say i'm i'm getting a puppy of x breed and therefore i expect it to have these traits and i'm going to bring it back if it doesn't have those traits like there is some amount of work that a breeder has to do to identify this particular puppy is better for this particular home and that particular puppy is better for that particular well home. i'll be honest i i think that's a little bit of uh uh of um myth in the purebred world, right? You know that when you breed a golden retriever that you're going to get a certain size, a certain coat, a certain look, a certain body frame, and and that stuff is very predictive. I think if we were to look at it honestly, I think that within a litter of golden retrievers or within all golden retrievers that you probably see a normal distribution of behavior traits along a bell curve, just like in a mixed breed population or a population of dachshunds or Bernese mountain dogs or whatever. I, I think that we, we tend to overestimate the predictability of temperament in a breed because they all look so similar. Well, and, and I look think at, if we looked at yeah. their temperaments, we would find quite a wide variety. Well, look at what the, the going back to the service dog um, groups, you know, the, the working dog registry and the service dog organizations that have absolutely done incredible amount of work to uh, quantify behavior traits that they test in a uniform way on all of the dogs they produce throughout their population right throughout the first two years and then they use uh you know the very best science there is uh, with estimated breeding values to try to predict which dogs are the best to breed and they have made huge progress on you know having more dogs be successful as service dog candidates by using all those strategies but they still have a lot of dogs that don't make it you know that even even with all of that there's there's no way to get to a hundred percent uh you know producing a hundred percent right so it it's um it's biology and the you know part of what makes it work is the diversity that's built in that's part of what makes you know uh, living beings i think what we're trying to say is recombinant genetics is uh complicated yeah really complicated you know really complicated especially when you're looking at behavior which is multi faceted Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. traits you know well and a lot of behavior is affected by environment and environment we have to remember is not just the environment of you know where the dog is living an adult as an adult but how it's raised in those critically important first sort of five to eight weeks, yes. which is when it's with the breeders. So I know that a lot of what you um, are providing guidelines for also is how the breeders manage the puppies yes. after they hit the ground. Yes. And Laura's told me today, Laura and I um, share a dog. Uh, well, he's Laura's dog, but Laura has a dog that I bred. But he's from Carolyn's breeding program. Right. Right. <laughs> so we're, we're having the experience of having her, um, Raising a puppy. Stop. What? We're throwing stuff. 
Yes, right. But uh, she tells me I need to work on my my puppy protocols to get the puppies to sleep in later in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm all for that. (laughs) I would would like Carolyn's puppies to sleep later than 6.30, so if she could start selecting for that, that would be awesome. (laughs) Well, I wanted to do a study to see if there is any influence from the environment of the first eight weeks because I was telling Laura that um, my puppies who I raise in my home in a puppy room off my kitchen um, have a very structured schedule and they go to bed at nine. The whole house goes to bed at nine. I mean, I work full time. My, my husband, bless his soul, who is half of the equation of why I can breed because he's here all the time and he, he doesn't have to go to an outside job. And so, uh, but we have a very structured schedule and um, we're up, we're up at five thirty or six and in bed at nine and the whole house shuts down and is quiet from nine to six. And then we're up. And, and, and I was wondering, my, if, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. my household is very different. My wife and I are both dog trainers, and so we both work evenings, which is when you know people take their dogs to class after their day job ends. And so sometimes our night, our work hours don't even end till 10 p.m. And so we're up significantly later at night, and we get up much later in the morning. So how much of you know? this puppy's getting up early was from those first, right. you know, eight weeks of life with Carolyn. It may very well be that that's not it at all, but isn't it's, it's, there are endless numbers of questions like that with how you raise puppies um, that, and what impact it has and what impact the dam's behavior has on temperament that again, uh, I've just been really astounded to find out how little we really understand. Or how, you know, how there's no, there's no clear recipe. There are all kinds of great ideas. You know, puppy culture is amazing and, and Avidog has good material and, um, but very little of it is like, uh, you know, been studied in a way where, you know, you tested, okay, raise well, the same puppies two different ways and then test adult, t- you know, nobody really knows. It's. I'd it's like all, to point out that this yeah. particular study of waking up early is, has, Actually has an N of <laughs> has an N of two because yeah. in addition to Carolyn's puppy who's four months now, I have a one year old who was bred in my house ah. on my schedule. Yeah, and she sleeps in. Yeah. Well, so you know, <laughs> well, when you breed uh, Carolyn's it, puppy, it will be very interesting to see. That's, that's true. Right, which is interesting because I might be breeding Carolyn's puppy to this puppy. <laughs> Oh. But, you know, with an N of two, I I hardly think we're breaking any new scientific ground. No, but if you start keeping track and you start successfully producing puppies who sleep late, I would take one of those. (laughs) Yeah. That's like my major reason for not wanting a puppy. Well, I'll be honest with you. You know, during this podcast, I'm sitting in a room with four dogs and they've just been lying here quietly the whole time. Right? Yeah. Well, One of the yeah. things I am actively breeding for is sort of dogs that can chill out in a busy world. My dogs are just lying around. Carolyn's puppy, my original girl, the puppy that I have from the last litter, they're just lying here with me while I talk. There's, you know, they're just really nice dogs. And I'm hoping we're, we're both hoping to share that with more and more people, right? Let's get right, some of exactly. these nice puppies out there, help people find a nice dog for their family. That's that's always been my goal, a nice family dog. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's make sure. So one thing that I think we would definitely be getting questions about, I, I, people always want to know about health testing, and we've talked about the um, sort of your general approach to health testing, um, but let's just, let's just sort of reassure people that these dogs are actually being health tested. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you sort of give an overview of what kinds of tests um, you're you're talking about in the co-op and with the recognition that not every test is appropriate for every dog, right? Right. Well, um, we, yeah, yeah, we require we require an embark as a baseline on everybody. And the reason that we made it an embark is because they're the only ones, only company that I know of right now who can give you a predicted COI on the puppies from any two dogs in their database. And so for now, given that they have the only ability to do that, we're using Embark. Some, some, so 
Yes. So every dog, if you want to be have a dog registered in the database, you have to kind of apply individually. And like I said, we look at each one individually. But a basic um, idea would be that we need to do the health testing for any breeds that we know are included. And, you know, um, that basically comes down to, for most dogs, hips, elbows, patellas, heart, eyes. Eyes thyroid potentially, and then some other ones depending on specific DNA that's testable and things like that. Am I missing something? I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, so there are some, you know, we need to know merle status. There are some specific breed content that would trigger us to do other kinds of. Yeah. For example, my, my foundation girl. She has had her CAERI exam. She has had her elbows and hips x-rayed. She has had a cardiology appointment to check her heart. Um, so let's see, eyes, hips, elbows, and she has her Embark. Uh, I know that she carries PRA, progressive retinal atrophy, so I want to make sure I don't breed her to another dog who carries PRA. That is sort of the 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 baseline of of what needs to be done before we can you know before we want to breed two dogs together we want to make sure that we're not doubling down on any recessive trait that could potentially cause problems in the future mm-hmm. yeah all those basic all those tests and then there are some other things in the guidelines that you know that aren't testable as far as has the dog been diagnosed with conditions that affect quality of life and or require treatment by a vet, the kind of things like autoimmune things and allergies and seizures and other things that we don't have testing for are also important when you're evaluating for breeding. Right. You want to ask about, um, certainly about family history there and then, um, and obviously about the actual dog, but it may not be old enough yet to, to know. Right. True. Right. So basically behaving like responsible breeders then. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. Using a hundred percent of the science that is available to us. Right. And also understanding that there are no perfect dogs and that all of it is a balance where you look at the whole dog, all of the tests, all of the dogs that are potential candidates and then make decisions. And, and our goal is to have data on lots of puppies out of our program, if not all of them, so that we can make the very best choices about who is best to breed. And I, I, have, I have a goal of, of, you know, right now, my foundation girl was half lab, half border collie. Because of the border collie, I took her to see a cardiologist and we got a cardiology report and she was, you know, looking fine. I want to know, like, if you're not breeding back to border collies or other dogs that have, you know, known heart issues, how long do you have to do that? How long do you have to get cardiology Meaning how many generations? How many generations? Yeah. How many generations of outbreeding before... You don't really have to test that because it hasn't cropped up. You've, you know, produced, you know, downstream puppies. You've produced, you know, 50 puppies. Um, did any of them, any of those puppies show any issue, any heart disease issues throughout their entire lives? You know, so this is something that is going to need to be on the ground for a really long time so that we can collect generational data. I think this, yeah, Laura, it goes to the whole thing I think I mentioned earlier that we really just, there's just a lot of answers that we don't have about heritability, particularly in mixed breeding programs. And I see a lot of people, you know, health testing is wonderful and it's a tool and it's, it's not that I'm, I feel like every time I say this, someone thinks I'm minimizing it. Like, oh, well, you just want to breed a dog that has a bad test result. Well, no, or, or not do the tests. But the truth is that when you really start to learn and try to figure out what best practices are, there's just, it's really complicated. Like, for instance, I don't know if you guys heard, there's a new test for um, CCL 
tears in purebred labs. Did you yeah, see I that? Yeah, I just heard about that. And yeah. I haven't, I, no one has gotten me the reference to the paper that, yeah. so I, I want to read about that if anyone. I want to learn more too. And I, yeah. I actually, um, was, we were in one of the breeding groups that I'm in online, we were talking about how, what we would use it for and whether we need to do it. It's, it's not even available yet, but it's supposed to be available maybe this fall. And it's a, it's a polygenic Sure. trait that they yeah. found a like a grouping of of uh things they're testing for so it's it's not like a one gene you know recessive it's a group and i am still trying to get my head around and i even emailed with the researchers a couple times and they were super helpful in answering my questions but i still don't understand it's predictive for the dog it's tested on. Like it tells you that they have this, they either have a high risk or a low risk based on a grouping of characteristics. And their recommendation is if the dog is shown to be high risk that you don't breed it within a population of purebred labs. So what, how do we use that information then? Are they recommending that? I mean, what percentage of purebred labs are high risk? Right. Can and you so, eliminate it all at once or do you breed high risk and low risk together? And and then what happens when you crossbreed? Does that change what the, you know, and, and, yeah. and frankly, you know, the test is what it is for the dog that you're testing, but they didn't, and maybe, you know, I have to learn more, but I'm not, I'm putting my best mind to it and still not sure what it means as far as heritability. So it's really so complicated. As a behavioral, or as a geneticist who has worked in what we call complex trait genetics, which yeah. would be yeah. traits that, um, I know you guys know this, but to tell the audience, traits that um, are dependent on many genes and also on the environment. And the risk of cruciate, cranial cruciate ligament tear is absolutely one of those. Um, many genes and the environment having to do with how much the dog exercises, how much the dog weighs, all that kind of thing. So do they do high impact stuff, right? Right, they, right, right. Yes. Are they agility dogs? Are they are they, dogs? Are they right. a weekend warrior where they're overweight right. and then on the weekend right. all of a sudden they play ball right. for three hours? And so, whether they're desexed is right, a big right. deal too. Yeah. Young, yeah, young, so with spay all of that, what we have been finding again and again is that a lot of times uh, when you look at markers, so they so what these I mean I haven't again I haven't read the paper and I would love to, but um, presumably what happened is these researchers looked at a population of Labrador retrievers and they found some markers that, you know, markers for, you know, this one set of alleles um, suggest high risk and that set of alleles suggest low risk. But there is almost certainly um, some amount of predisposition for risk that is part of being a Labrador retriever. And that when you look at those markers outside of the background of being a purebred Labrador retriever, there's, you know, there's other genes that these genes are almost certainly interacting with. And those, those genes are all one way in Labradors, which is why they're not finding them when they do the test. In Labradors, they're only finding what's different within Labradors. They're not finding what is the same in Labradors that predisposes Labradors to that problem to begin with. And so when you start looking at this set of, of risk alleles in a dog that's not a Labrador retriever or that's only part Labrador retriever, there's some mystery um, set of genes that may or may not be there. And so exactly it is, you know, we would really like for researchers to do this test um, in many different populations of dogs. And I'm sure that's happening, but it's slow and expensive, right? Um, and so assuming that just because a dog has comes out with a test as being high risk, if they're not a lab or not a purebred lab, um, it's really hard to know what that means and how much, um, how much faith to put in the predictivity of the test. Right. And so now we have to decide based on this new information, does do that, yeah. right. What do we do with it? Does it inform our breeding choices going forward? Right. You know, it's very easy from the outside and, and I'm not, you know, not, I've heard a lot since I started breeding of people who have very easy answers. Oh, well, you know, then you should do that test and eliminate any dog that's high risk, you know, forever in all of them immediately. But when you really start looking at it, is that true? I mean, is that, would you eliminate a dog in a mixed breeding program if they were high risk for CCL based on that test? Maybe, probably. Or would you 
not, would you end up eliminating dogs that really weren't ever going to cause a problem? Do you know that? What, what is the whole picture of the dog and what are all the things that you're trying to balance when you're making a breeding choice? So it's easy to say, do all the tests and eliminate all the dogs with any kind of bad score, but it, it isn't really that simple when you get right down to it. It's a lot more complicated than that. No, breeding is yeah, hard. Breeding is hard, but I am hopeful, right? I mean, look at what breeding has done. Breeding has created, selective breeding of canines has created some amazing, amazing dogs, right? I'm a Border Collie person. The fact that you can, like, have a Border Collie, you know, two hills away, turn right or turn left based on a whistle, you know? Like, we created that. That's amazing. You know, you have a, a terrier, you have a, 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 a livestock guarding dog who hangs out and, and sleeps with the sheep and, and guards them and keeps everybody safe. That is also amazing, right? And if we can breed them to do those things, we can breed them to be great pets. That's what I believe. I believe that too. I think that's, and that's probably a good place to, to move forward to sort of where, where does the cooperative stand? So you have some breeders who are part of your community already. We do. Absolutely. Um, we are currently in the process of having, you know, we put together the beginnings of the co The cooperative has evolved, especially in the past year. And we are currently accepting applications. Anyone is interested in joining our group, you can go to functionalbreeding.org and go to the about section and look at under breeding co-ops and you will find the co-pilot co-op that's us as long as you agree to our standards and guidelines then you can join and become part of our community we have um, plans on adding a companion dog registry stud book to facilitate the sharing of you know stock and we are looking to, we are beginning to register dogs now. So we're starting to register the first dogs. We have a database set up and we will be registering litters um, probably as they starting. Appear, yeah. yeah. Well, you know what? We're going to register litters as they appear. The other thing is if um, you've had a litter in the last five years and both dogs can be registered as breeding dogs, we are going to um, allow breeders to register any litters they produce in the last five years, which nice. is That'll going to bootstrap. Yeah. Yes. It'll help us start off with a population that we can start uh, looking at. So that's, I'm really excited about that. So how big do you want this to be? Big. Yeah. So big, <laughs> you know, Carolyn suggested calling um, our database, a companion dog registry. And I thought, Oh, you know, that's kind of a boring functional name. And Carolyn's response was, yes, yeah, so that was AKC when they started American Kennel Club. Mm. <laughs> functional. And that <laughs> sort of like opened the world for me. Like what if CDR becomes that, you know, something big like that companion dog registry. So yeah, big. That's how big. Yeah, we have a lot of ideas and vision about how we can support breeders in doing good work and how we can support um, puppy buyers and puppy families um, on an ongoing basis uh, for companion dog registered dogs. So we'd love to have lots of people join us and get a big um, population of dogs that we can study and produce some amazing pets for the world. And, and Perhaps, you know, if we have enough of a database, contribute to the science of it. Absolutely. I would love all of that. So, all right. So you guys have let people know how they can find the cooperative itself. And um, certainly if people are interested in just participating, participating more in this conversation, joining the Functional Breeding Facebook group would be a good way to do that um, on a more general level, but you can certainly get in touch with Laura and Carolyn through the Breeding Cooperative page. And I'll put, uh, I'll put the information 
uh, on how to do that in the show notes. So I'm, I'm so excited about this. I really appreciate both of you coming out here and explaining it all. And I wish you the best of luck. And um, yeah, onward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast, so we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functionalbreeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Merton. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.